0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to How to Save the Planet. I'm Mona, your favorite climate campaigner, and uh, this month is Black History Month. Um, and although speaking about kind of race and climate justice goes far beyond a specific month, I think we thought we'll use this moment to spotlight the issue um, and get everyone up to speed and, and hopefully involved as well. Firstly, we have uh, Michaela Loach, who's a medical student, climate justice activist, and also a fellow podcast host. So make sure you, you tune in. Um, and then we welcome back Majid Majid. So he he is obviously a former Lord Mayor of Sheffield and former member of the European Parliament, a social justice activist, and has also recently released a book, The Art of Disruption, a, r- a manifesto for real change. So I know his mum is very proud of him right now. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everyone. Nice. How are you? Welcome, welcome.
1: No, thank you. Really excited to be here and yeah, grateful to be joined by amazing people and yeah, doing well.
2: Yeah, I'm really, really excited to have this conversation. Um Yeah, we should be talking about these things all year round, but um, it's good that Black History Month almost can prompt people to talk about these things um, or start a conversation.
0: And in the middle, we're joined by David Lammy. Unfortunately, he had to run off to some important parliamentary business, such as life, so he wasn't there for the whole of the discussion. And his audio is a little bit quiet, so apologies in advance for that. Just in case you aren't familiar with him, David Lammy is a member of Parliament for Tottenham, and he recently released a book called Tribes. How Our Need to Belong Can Make or Break Society and recently hosted an inspiring TED Talk on racial and climate justice. Okay, so let's just dive straight in and really unpack the terminology that we'll be using. So Michaela, what does kind of climate justice and racial justice mean to you and why, why do you think the two are linked?
2: Um, so to me, like climate justice is a principle that sees that not only in the ways that the climate crisis affects people are there inequalities um because of so many different reasons, because of socioeconomic qualities, because of race, um, um, because of gender, and so many different reasons why the climate crisis will affect certain people more than others. But also in the way that we tackle the climate crisis, that we mitigate its effects, we need to make sure that we're thinking of justice at the centre of all of it. And that in that way, the climate crisis, from its origins and from its impacts and from the solutions, needs to be a social justice issue. We need to centre social justice in everything that we're doing. um, And so climate justice is social justice and is racial justice because all of these things are completely interlinked and we cannot separate them from each other um it's like if we address the climate crisis without addressing racial injustice then we'll end up with the same racist world that we live in at the moment but just we might not have as much of pressure around the climate crisis as we do now and that shouldn't be what we're aiming for we should be looking for like holistic justice
0: yes Imagine I see you nodding. I feel, I feel your energy. Yeah. <laughs> no, one
1: hundred percent. I agree with everything. And uh, said, like, there's a clear and crucial connection between both climate and race, and so we can't really talk about the climate crisis without recognising that it is also an inequality and race issue. So, like, the effects of the climate crisis, wherever that may be, are massively unequal and unfair. So, the reality is that it was created by the privileged few, mainly living in the global north but sadly it is hitting ethnic minorities marginalized communities the hardest and i guess without a radical and rapid change of course this should we say this unjust trend adds itself to other profound and historic injustices black and brown people face not just across europe but all and um, across the world as well so i guess to really tackle and um, the climate crisis, even for race we need we can't do it without and uh, the global south. And I think it's important that we do look at it from a global perspective. Of course, even to get our own house, you know, to say we've got a green new deal in the UK and and in Europe, if the global south aren't supported into, you know, it's we're not going to tackle it. And like Michelle said, it needs it needs a holistic approach and justice. And I think justice in itself has to be at the heart and centre of everything.
0: Yeah. I mean, I I think people, and I've certainly been like, Push back on this. People might see kind of the climate crisis as a class issue, um, and not necessarily see like the intersect with race. Is there specific things that you can touch upon to be like, this is how you know black and brown people are disproportionately impacted by the climate crisis?
1: Yeah. So I guess one thing that comes to mind and uh, straight away is the tragic death of Ella, who sadly is probably good the first person whose cause of death is air pollution, and and I reckon like we. Like especially which like a lot of ethnic minority communities are often concentrated in main roads, major cities, and suffer the consequences of decisions made by people. I guess will often have no idea of what their plight is. They have dirtiest and industries in their backyard. Their children have got asthma, and there's even like cancer clusters and in those communities these communities suffer sadly the consequence of decisions made by i guess wealthy elites and corporations who don't necessarily have their best interest and at heart
2: well one thing that i one like case study that i draw on quite a lot um so if we look at like in the global south um but in um the agoni people in nigeria who are being like persistently abused by Shell which is a fossil fuel company and even, even if you look at where fossil fuels are being extracted around the world and which communities are the ones being abused which activists are the ones being literally murdered um they're all black indigenous people of color that are being like really physically oppressed by these fossil fuel industries um and if you don't see, I, I, I find it strange that people can't, well, not strange. I understand we've, we've like all of our education and everything has been kind of taken away from us. The reality of a lot of history has been taken away from us. And so people don't see the connections that colonialism has with fossil fuel industry today, which is pretty much neocolonialism, um, and colonialism is was pretty much built off white supremacy and racism. So if we can't see how that same system is being manifested again today, and if we can't see how that interlinks with, with racism and racial injustice, then we're never going to be able to actually fully see the issue. We're just ignoring what's actually going on.
0: One thing I was shocked to know um, is kind of the rate and scale of climate migration um and it's like in the millions um like it was the estimated figures um and I just think if I in my head I'm like if people knew that they would be like let's go let's do something about it
2: and I think people think that um climate refugees are something of the future or that displacement is something of the future but it's happening right now um just international law doesn't protect these people and that's what um I wrote my thesis last year for my global health policy degree on um climate refugees and climate migration and are specifically focusing on an island nation called Kiribati which is in the South Pacific and that's supposed to be the first nation that's going to be completely submerged and um, genuinely within the next like before the next 10 years it's going to be completely submerged and already um they've experienced um contaminated like water um they've experienced like health issues because of obviously if if sea levels are rising that much also it's an island atoll nation, so there's multiple different islands, and some of those islands have already been completely submerged, so the population is now concentrated on the biggest island. Um, and I think people don't know these things are happening right now. They see it as something that's going to happen in the future. Like, for example, in Edinburgh, you can walk down to Leith, and people have like spray-painted on the ground there where the sea level will rise to within by 2050, I think it was. Um, but it's already happening to so many communities. And it's not just because of rising sea levels, but it's also through droughts. So there's case studies of um especially in Somaliland, there's been like huge droughts there that have meant that there have been current refugees. But international law doesn't protect those people currently. So um it means that when people are displaced, um they aren't classed as refugees globally, and they aren't protected. And as we're projecting that there's going to be million, like tens of millions more people who are displaced by the climate crisis, we need to create systems that protect those people. And that's why the climate crisis is a migrant crisis as well. well I, don't, I don't like to say migrant, we have a crisis of empathy, not a migrant crisis, but it is it's a migrant justice issue, and we need to see how these things are interlinked. Oh, absolutely!
0: I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with that, especially as someone who comes from small land and like my, my family are there just seeing the, the, the droughts and the and the impacts of that you know, even, in, even in the city where water is more secure, um, just the idea of just how it's impacted families, how it's impacted livestock and then livelihoods. And then it's just this really horrible cycle, um, of, you know, like destruction. Um, and for me, I'm, I'm like, that is one clear way in which people of color across the world are. It's ridiculously impacted by the climate Mm. crisis.
2: I mean, I even think of, so I was born in Jamaica and I obviously have like a lot of family in Jamaica and... Even there, when we've gone to beaches that I went to when I was a child, we recently went back and the beach is like almost completely gone because of the sea levels that much higher, which is quite scary when you think of it like that. And also if you think about how many hurricanes are happening and adverse weather adverse weather event, events, it's quite scary. I think especially as someone who's like part of the diaspora and like lives in the UK, which is going to be less affected by the climate crisis. I do think about my family back home in Jamaica and like how that's going to impact them. And I've been speaking to a lot of my other friends who are also like um, diaspora kids and that all of us talk about how... We we're so much more afraid for like uh, of how much is going to affect our families in the countries where we were born or that our parents are from and how it's so frustrating that um maybe communities like aren't aware of that even and how the climate crisis is something that's preventable and that we can do something about it and it's just frustrating that yeah that it's being ignored and the reason that those issues are being ignored are connected to white supremacy and racism you can't disconnect them like if, if um, it was going to be countries like the UK that were going to be the most affected, do you think that we would have let it go on for this long? Probably not.
0: And, David, as an MP for a very, for a very urban area, do you see issues of kind of climate adjusting justice manifesting there?
3: I would have thought this was self evident. And there's a real problem, frankly, that this is not sufficiently understood. Uh, the face of the housing crisis in London, in Birmingham, in Manchester is a black face. Um, the majority of people, of, of young people who are living above the fourth floor in Britain are black, Asian or minority ethnic people. Um, who is developing asthma? Who is living in overcrowded accommodation? Who is living on busy main streets near the most polluted roads in the country? Um, they are people of colour. And then, of course, if you juxtapose that with who is struggling with climate change in the global south, and I think of my relatives in Guyana, um, uh, which is the second poorest country in the Western Hemisphere, which has rising sea levels and constant floods. If you think of places like Darfur, if you think of places like the Amazon Basin, It is self-evident that it is people of colour who are confronted with the climate crisis and therefore there can be no success in dealing with the climate crisis unless you deal with racial justice and social justice alongside it, it seems to me.
0: Absolutely. And I think, I mean, that was something that Michaela was talking about earlier. And I mean, I certainly feel it even in lockdown, just even access to parks and um, being able to have space to nature, being able to, you know, having a garden. It's so clear that even on such a granular level of simple access to physical and mental spaces that improve our wellbeing, it's always kind of almost like the shortest straw is pulled. Um, Now I've, in At Friends of the Earth, we always like to speak of this aha moment that everyone has when they first kind of came to being aware of the climate disaster um, and that it was a problem and they needed to act on it. Mine came quite late. I certainly thought the movement was quite hippie and it wasn't for me. But, but I want to see if you guys have this the kind
2: of similar feelings to it. So Michaela, when did you have your specific aha moment? Um, I wish I remember the exact moment, but I just, I know at some point I was much more involved in like refugee rights activism before climate activism. I was more interested in like migrant justice and that's, and I'd go to Calais and help out there and I'd like campaign around that and i think i don't remember the exact day but one day i realized um that the climate crisis is going to cause the greatest um, forced migration that the world has ever seen and that it is a migrant rights issue as well and it's a racial justice issue and it's all these other social justice issues that i cared about because i think kind of like you i didn't see myself represented in the climate movement before like i didn't really see black climate activists in the uk as much um i didn't see myself like As being part of that movement, Um, I think it's only when I realised how it was connected to these other issues and how it was the biggest issue that we're going to face when it comes to all of these different issues that I then was like, "Oh my gosh, if we don't tackle the climate crisis through a social justice lens, then all of these issues I care about are only going to get worse."
0: Yeah, no, I I definitely like echo that so much, David. Do you have a kind of? Can you resonate with that experience, or is it is it a bit different? Well,
3: look, I mean, I would say that I'm known. For being a social justice campaigner. Um, That's my primary goal. Uh, You know, I'm known because I care about class and race. Um, But the truth is, I remain hugely connected to the global south, um, to issues around international development, and what i suppose begun to happen is that i i saw that we were running into the same issues and frankly i felt quite strongly that that the climate movement too often was incredibly white uh, and wasn't joining the dots um and that's why i've begun to make more of an intervention i think also in this age of black lives matter and uh, reckoning with colonialism it's important to understand that colonialism was the um, ultimate extractive model. And to some extent, climate change is its natural conclusion. Uh, And that is that whether it's colonialism, apartheid, Jim Crow and segregation, in a sense, it's the exploitation of people. And uh, the pursuit of fossil fuels and all the rest of this gets us to this place. And that connects intimately with the experience of people of colour and black people across the world.
0: Mm-hmm. And um, Majid, why do you think the movement is is so white? And I and I definitely have been in the spaces. Where I'm like, oh geez, just me, <laughs> um, and and just feel like, just yeah, feel like a bit alienated. And it's you know obviously if a movement or an issue disproportionately impacts black or brown people, why? Why don't
1: why is it still so white? I guess it's, um for a lot of people, like our immediate needs always outtrumps the long term outcome of uh, something else, basically. And I guess a lot of people who are struggling are working from paycheck to paycheck. And um, but for some of them, it's also like it can be, even though it might be right in front of them, that'd be air pollution, whatever it is. Like, and I was telling someone there was an example of in Sheffield that we actually had to close an entire school down just because the air pollution was. That uh, and terrible, but it's also just a case of like people feel powerless more than anything else. I guess they may feel like their small actions won't make a big difference, especially when everything else and uh, with everything else that's going on. But also, and um, the media's got a role to play in it as well. I reckon at times I feel as if like there can be a lot of rhetoric around catastrophe, like a dystopia, and of course, that has got its own place And we need to keep on raising the alarm. But it's also really important that we do share a really positive vision of what a better world could look like and i guess that's where the whole and green new deal and and comes into like that so it really really and is important but i guess it's like there's a a lot of people who are suffering and it's been said that and someone's postcode is a better predictor of their health than anything else and if you're about it where people live has been shaped by a long history of racial discrimination both explicit and implicit that's why a lot of um, black and brown folk and bme people haven't got that much access to green spaces on a local level national level and a lot of a lot, even local authorities tend to invest heavily to improve in and um, shall we say a neighborhood by planting trees building parks etc cetera, etc cetera. but i guess and um, it is directly correlated to the wealth gap as well so the nature gap and the wealth gap are massively correlated
0: yeah, Michaela I could see you not—you uh, know—really in- nodding heavily as much as speaking. Is that something you resonate with?
2: Yeah, I think so. I'm as a medical student, I care a lot about health, um, and I see that health is more just more than just treating like the downstream effects of things. It's like you need to go upstream and be like, why are these issues happening in the first place? <laughs> And something that I find quite hopeful about the climate crisis is so the Lancet wrote a climate and health report and their initial report, they called the climate crisis the biggest threat the 21st century has ever seen. But in their most recent one, they called it the biggest global health opportunity the 21st century has seen. And that's a big change in in how you frame an issue. And the reason that it can be seen as a global health opportunity is that um, the inequalities that we see within health, um, some scholars say that it becomes written on the body. So health inequalities become written on the body as um Mental, like as disorders with mental health or as like physical disorders or things that can reduce life expectancy. Um, and when we address the climate crisis through a climate justice lens, we also address those inequalities. So health is helped in so many ways. And that could be making green green spaces that aren't gentrified. So like community gardens instead that um, improve health of communities in so many different ways. It may be like, yeah, improving air quality. There are so many ways in which we can tackle the climate crisis that also helps health and also takes down inequality And I think when you like communicate it in that way to people, it's so much more hopeful and people are more likely to get involved. And especially those communities that are oppressed are more likely to get involved because they're like, oh, wait a minute, like tackling this helps all of us in so many different
0: ways. And I really, really love that. And I think that's one of the things that I'm seeing. Maybe you can all agree with this idea of the, the narrative around the green recovery from the coronavirus now seems to be one of hope and one of actually, you know, addressing the climate crisis to fix fuel fuel poverty and, you know, ensure people can have, you know, clean air or, um, you know, a sustainable job that they don't, you know, that actually can pay the bill really well, but also doesn't hurt the planet. I think that's kind of that hope that I think we probably need to tap into. Um, David, is there anything else you think we need to do to address uh, the movement being kind of so white and not really involving black or brown people?
3: Oh, I think we've got to go back to basics. I think that We've got to ask ourselves, who is studying environmental science, for example, in our universities? And what are we doing to make sure that uh, black and brown people get access to bursaries and scholarships to do that? I think that the movement, particularly um, organisations like Friends of the Earth and others, have got to think hard about where they're based and located. And I certainly have made the case that actually urban communities like mine in Tottenham would do well to have um, big, significant not-for-profit organisations that care about these issues located amidst uh, urban communities who are facing this. I think that uh, as we've seen across international development with, with a real effort to ensure that the global south is present in the boardroom, it's important also that those voices are right at the seniority of the debate. So I think that there is quite a lot we can do structurally in relation to a movement to bring forward black and brown people to be able to make that case, not just protesting and taking to the streets and acting as volunteers, but also leading, leading in the institutions and present when big decisions are being made around the table.
0: Mm, yeah, no, I I, def- I can definitely hear that. Um, You know, there might be someone listening right now thinking, oh my God, I want to do something. I want to get involved. Change is happening. Where do I start? Is there one thing that you would suggest they, you know, they can do? Give us the kind of the, the pearls of wisdom.
2: I think it's hard. It's always hard to to choose one thing to say i think the reason that i will a lot of the time go to like doing internal anti-racism work is essential for climate justice is because i feel like I'm not not enough people say that we get a lot of people saying like join the movement we get a lot of people saying like reduce your personal impact but i don't think there's enough focus on like how much like decolonizing your own mind will actually help the movement as a whole um so i would say that like doing your own anti-racism work is a great thing to do but then also yeah like join in a movement in some way, maybe start your own movement. Like, I think people feel like if you don't see something happening in your community, then you can be the one to kind of precipitate that. But if you see something already happening, then just lend a hand. I always say that like organizing is like, if you're running an event, you need some people who are going to be the ones who speak, but you also need some people who are going to like print off flyers and some people who are going to make tea. Like there's so many different roles for people. It doesn't matter if you're not the most confident person. It doesn't matter if you don't think you have X skills, like you can still be involved absolutely um david do you have anything to add
3: just get involved um you know in the end see these movements what's happened this year with black lives matter the continuing fight in relation to um 2030 in the battle on on the climate emergency these are combined fights i think the millennials get it i really do but the truth is they are at this stage a long way from power so this is an ask to baby boomers to educate yourself um, to read the literature to understand how these things are connected um, not just to talk the language of extraction but to understand where it comes from and therefore get into uh, decolonizing as an issue um, understand what the c40 are up to and the challenges of pollution in our major urban cities and join the dots to the Global South and ask the organisations that you join the hard questions about who is leading the debate and who is being, if you like, let out of the discussion. So there's, there's lots to do at this point in time and it's very, very exciting. And of course, I'd recommend my TED talk that, tr- that as an attempt to combine these issues
0: <laughs> brilliant plug there. Um Majid yeah what would you recommend?
1: I'd say um I guess in terms of bringing it back in terms of like um climate justice and racial justice I think one thing like especially to um, the white folk who might be listening is to really become an act to become actively anti-racist which I guess basically is actively fighting against racism rather than being passively sympathetic towards it we need them and everyone to really understand that our that our racial inequality crisis is massively intertwined with the climate crisis that we can't do one without the both go hand in hand, but not only that also whether that be centralized projects, policies decisions regarding climate action because there's always discussions and decisions happening regarding climate action that it does not worsen injustice and that black people and brown people are currently going for are currently going through so and it really has to make sure that it's got them at the heart of it and especially it's giving them a voice and especially for those from the underprivileged and immigrant backgrounds and their concerns are being heard because it's I guess it's really important to emphasize that the climate transition demands that we ensure that any and all remedial action against climate change i guess is just it's not only is it just inclusive and diverse in outlook and especially like now more than ever especially with the recent global events i know david Lambian and and touched upon whether that be coronavirus black lives matter it has massively transformed what is politically possible like the and the Black Lives Matter have exposed not only the deep inequality within our society, but what many people have been saying for a long time and arguing that we are only as secure as the most vulnerable amongst us. So I guess the realms of what can be done have dramatically expanded over those recent events. And as a result, we really have to be ambitious and demand more.
0: There we go. Brilliant. Awesome. Okay, thank you so much to everyone. Um, and while this panel um, is, all, is all kind of all non-white panel, obviously it's important to remember that anti-racism work and ra- and racial justice work is not just the responsibility of the people facing the oppression. It is also the responsibility of our allies um, who need to be central in solving it as well. Okay, with that, everyone, um, I say thank you again um, and bid you adieu. Take care, everyone. Bye. Bye. Well, that was a really, really great chat, and one you can tell that I'm really passionate about. You know, obviously as Friends of the Earth, you know, we, you know, just because we hosted one past podcast on this doesn't mean our work is done. It's absolutely far from over, and I think it's a continual work. We're, you know, working on racial justice, climate justice, and social justice, you have to continually affirm and ensure that you know the voices of those most marginalised are heard and centred in the work that we do, and actually we're being true allies um, and amplifying their calls for justice too. Um, you might have also heard um, Majid speak about the death of Ella Roberta, um, uh, the young girl who sadly passed away from a fatal asthma attack. If you want to listen to more about her story, um, her mother Rosamond Kisi Deborah joined one of our "How to Save the Planet" live talks, which you can catch up on on YouTube. Before I go, coming up for "How to Save the Planet," we'll be appearing in the Pebble Future Fest, where we will be hosting a live podcast. Now, this is the first for us, so you can you know we're as nervous as you can imagine. But, but it's really exciting because we'll be talking to a local group about how to make real changes in your community and how to really work for a carbon friendly future um, as part of that we want to hear from you all of your questions so if you're keen to submit please go on social media Twitter or Instagram or Facebook and make sure to ask your question with the hashtag how to save the planet and that's it from us please make sure to like and subscribe to the podcast and share far and wide so as many people can listen in that's it from me take care and have a great one. Bye.